as an author, think about it from the perspective of a reader. Reader doesn't know you. You're asking that reader to take money out of their wallet, probably their digital wallet, right? But take money out of their wallet and give that money to you for a book. They should be entertained and hopefully there's some greater themes or greater lessons at work, which hopefully I've done with, with Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest, and this is part two of my conversation with Dre Alvarez. Dre has a fantastic podcast called The Box Score Geeks, and in anticipation of publishing my book, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, I asked Dre if he would interview me, and we decided that he would we would cross-post the interviews. So this interview is showing up on Dre's podcast, The Box Score Geeks, and then I've taken the audio and am cross-posting it here on my podcast. And I'm curious about something because obviously this, this is not an accident. You've got Zen in your title, Phil Jackson, mm-hmm. right? There, there's absolutely mm-hmm. no way the image of Phil Jackson. I've got a question for you, which is Phil Jackson is the most legendary NBA coach, and he's actually renowned for some of what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, some of these things. That's where to I first it. learned about it was from reading his books. So I'm, I owe a big debt of gratitude to, to Phil Jackson. But so here's what's funny to me. You you talk about how you go to these coaching camps with Bob Knight and Krzyzewski, the old model, mm-hmm. and that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And Phil Jackson at the highest level with some of the biggest names against some of the toughest com- opponents of the all-time greatest teams that you could probably construct in the NBA of five. I would give you maybe five. Phil Jackson is probably responsible to two or three of them, depending on how mm-hmm. many bulls you allow. So I would basically say the 01 Lakers that went 16 and one in the playoffs, the um, 72 win Bulls or the 1992 Bulls who are one of the greatest teams of the regulation three. So best coach ever. And he says some of this, mm-hmm. he doesn't catch on so much, whereas mm-hmm. these other ones do. And I, I'm very curious if you have any opinions on that, because it is funny to me to see Phil Jackson, who you're making an homage to. You don't even have, it's not like you say what I learned from Phil Jackson in big letters. You just say Zen. That's all you yep. need to say on the cover of your book. And I'm like, of course, this is related to Phil Jackson in some way or another. Why don't you think people catch on as much with it? Yeah. And it's also kind of a, not kind of, it's a reference to a relatively well-known book called Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and another book called Zen in the Art of Archery. So it's in that tradition of, of how meditation impacted this area, which is coaching sports. So it's a great question, and, and I do have a theory about it, which is the traditional model of coaching, again, which you know I'm sitting there with 500 other coaches watching Bob Knight, watching Krzyzewski, and just as an aside, I, I'm, that's not to say that they didn't create lasting, important, effective relationships with their players, because I'm sure we can find player after player that will sing the praises of both of those coaches that if they played for them. It's just that the model or the side that is being presented publicly is very much that punishment obedience model. Now, I'm pretty sure Bob Knight was a giant asshole regardless, but it's not to say that they didn't develop important and positive, meaningful relationships with their players. But to your point about why didn't Phil Jackson's way catch on or why didn't the Ted Lasso way catch on 30 years ago, I think it's because so many players were coached under the traditional model. They then become coaches and general managers and sports writers and so forth. And that's what they're expecting. I don't know that I could have gotten away as a brand new coach. I mean, as to a new team at a new school, I don't know that I could have gotten away with my methods in the U S because parents would have flipped out. 
because it doesn't look anything like regular coaching. Like he's literally not participating in the team huddles. He's literally sitting while the players are playing. They meditate. We even meditated in the middle of a game once uh, before the start of the fourth quarter in the, in the playoff game. And doing those things as a complete unknown in the States, there would be so much pushback from parents because it doesn't look like what we think coaching is. So I think that it's just seeped throughout the culture that it's just what people expect. And someone like Phil Jackson, who does something different, it's not like, oh, that's really successful. Let's copy it. It's like, that's weird. I don't know what that is. Let's go back to the other way. Okay. So look, we, we've gone a while. I've got more questions that I'm definitely going to ask them. Ben Guess lucks into three, lucks slash finds his way into three really amazing coaching opportunities. In the book, and I can't quite get the timing based on COVID, but you basically say you finished, you finished coaching four years mm. ago. So mm-hmm. did, are, did you? Okay. So it wasn't COVID based. Mm. What, what made you step away? It was a combination of time and money. It took, it took up so much of my time. And I think anybody who's coach, who's been a head coach can relate to this. When I was an assistant coach at Simmons, if we were up, let me say, if we were up 21 points with two minutes left, I'm on the bench laughing with the guys, having a good time, not stressed about anything. If I'm in that same position as a head coach, up 21 points with two minutes left, I'm standing there or sitting there thinking, they could hit seven threes. Um, meaning you never, like you never shut off. And even, and that was when I was a younger coach, as a, as a more mindful meditative coach, it wasn't so much about the outcome. Uh, no, it wasn't about the outcome. It was about the relationships. But even then afterwards, I would just run the game back over and over in my head. Of course, I videotaped the games and would, would rewatch them and cut them up to show clips to the, to the players. And your brain just almost never shuts off from thinking about basketball. And then also it, it got expensive in that giving the guys maybe, because it's a professional league. Uh, and I would say, you know, not all players are paid in that league, but, but most are. And I gave the guys, you know, and that last year, I probably gave the guys $50 a month, each, each player, not very much money at all. But when you're, <laughs> a university lecturer or high school teacher, as I was there, you don't have much money to throw around. And I would do little fundraiser. I do an annual fundraiser, friends and family in the States would, would send money and, you know, pay for taxis for the guys to get to the game or $50, you know, just to buy a little bit of food or something each month. And so it was a combination of the, the amount of time coaching and, or just thinking about coaching took up and the cost that those are the two reasons I stopped. Here's an interesting follow-up question to that. So you're in the States now, obviously you're releasing mm. this book, people are going to see stuff. Is being associated with basketball coaching in the United States something interesting to you? If, if someone offered you a, you know, it's a rough part. We just talked the money. It's the same in the U.S. You know, if you're an assistant coach in the U.S., unless it's at the top, top level, that doesn't pay either. Um, right. But is coaching basketball in the United States with more thoughtful practices something you're interested in at all in, or at least even just passing on some information that you think others could use? Yeah, for sure. Uh, matter of fact, there's a great program at the University of Missouri, a master's in education program called the Positive Coaching and Leadership um, Degree. And I interviewed the, the director of that program. 
And there's a bunch of, so it focuses on what we're talking about, coaching in a positive manner and how to encourage and so on and so forth. And they have a bunch of graduates across the country. And I was messaging with one of their graduates who's telling me about the program. And he's been a football coach in, in Baltimore for five years at Gilman. And then I was messaging with somebody else who had just started coaching. And I said, hey, let me know if you want to, you know, jump on a Zoom call. I'll just give you my thoughts because they had heard about my book. And so I'm more than happy. I enjoy talking coaching with coaches. And my best friend is, is a high school basketball coach in, in Northampton, Massachusetts. So, and, and I think I was a really good assistant coach when I was in, in Hollandale. Uh, I was not a good head coach when I was in Mississippi, but I was a great assistant coach because that, then it's much more about listening to the guys and developing relationships. And you're not worried so much about minutes and wins and losses. Would I ever go back to coaching as a head coach? Never say never. Uh, if this past year and a half has taught us anything, it's that you don't can't really predict what's coming. So I never thought I'd go back to coaching uh, after I stopped in my twenties. So no, I would never say never. And I think I'm really interested to see how coaching has evolved with these things like the Positive Coaching Alliance, Ted Lasso, and this great pro and this great program at the University of Missouri. So you just pointed out an amazing portion of your book where the end of the game is how can my mind be in the game at the very end? And I know I keep bringing up chess and that's just one of my shticks, but it's interesting. I was listening to an interview with some chess players and they were saying, that's the difference in older versus younger chess players. They say, I don't think my skills have gone. I don't think my analysis is gone. I think my energy has, has left as things have gone on. And that's ironic because what you're saying is being able to be mindful in the 48th minute of the game is the difference between a championship team and not. And it's funny, there are all sorts of, uh, I'll give this out, throwing back to the Lakers. So um, Robert Ori is a, an interesting cat. And mm. he brings up actually, so years later, he's talking about this last second play with Kobe, where ironically, Kobe's the decoy. Mm -hmm. And Robert Ori closes out on Kobe and Kobe gets an open pass. And I think that's to Derek Fisher, shot goes in. And Robert Ori's later is saying, Popovich told me, I, you can't let Kobe get the shot. Uh, and I told him he was wrong, but it's funny because you've got this professional player at the top level explaining that the difference between winning and losing this key NBA game was at the end of the game, these, these people are still playing a game of chess with each other. It's not about, I can beat Kobe in sprints down the, I can, I can out sprint Kobe down the court at minute 48. It's, can I outthink Kobe and mm. Phil Jackson with Greg Popovich on my back in minute 48? And he's saying they didn't. So that's, right. and that's even, even to that, to that point, there's even a level beyond that, right? It's not, can I outthink as we're walking out onto the court to run this play or, or defend this play, can I outthink what's going to happen? That that's great. It's fantastic. When, when players and coaches can do that, it's like seeing the future. And that was one of the things that I loved actually when I was a coach in my twenties was like outsmarting the other coach. But there's a level beyond that. And, and that's the moment that we're talking about with Jack, where it's not, he wasn't thinking ahead of time. What do I do if my defender doesn't follow me to the three-point line? It's not, can I outthink my opponent? It's, can I react in the moment just as it is? And I read an interview with Jordan where they said, you know, before you take a game-winning shot, you think about previous shots that you missed. And he said, why would I think about a shot that already happened? 
And then the reporter said, well, do you think about what would happen if you miss this shot or if you make this shot? And he says, he said, why would I think about a shot I haven't yet taken, right? You're just in, you're totally present in the moment. And that's what, that's what was so marvelous about what Jack did. Oh, absolutely love it. I'm going to try and get onto some logistical stuff. I would be remiss if I yeah. didn't, since you are the master of it. But I was going to say, any other thoughts you you have on, on your own book, uh, your baby at this point? Yeah, it's so it's cool that it's out in the world, and I've sent out advanced copies to various people and gotten great feedback. It, I'm proud of my writing, and I think it's almost an effortless read, and it's interesting because it's about how mindfulness and how meditation kind of supercharges performance. And it's also just a, a kick-ass basketball story, I think. There's so much content here. It's easy to circle back. I'd rather people read first and at least have people have the chance to have read the book before mm -hmm. I'm asking about how do you feel about, you know, down the line with this person and down, cause there's, yeah. there's some triumph. There's some heartbreak. I'll throw that out there. You know, I think uh, it's ironic. I spent so much of this podcast pitching that says, here's what the movie looks like. Here's what the trailer. I think you use the phrase in your book multiple time, you know, like, what, what is it? You know it better. Life, something like life doesn't have Hollywood endings. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the, the end of the book is, is definitely bittersweet. Yeah. And so I would say, and with that is kind of a tease, definitely go look, look into the book. You do a really good job touching the odd parts of sports. We're talking these phrases, these war mindsets, these class mm -hmm. divides. Mm -hmm. I think it's a hard subject to your point. You could have done an entire another book on it. I think you said, you know, you mentioned apartheid Africa. You could have done a bunch with that, um, that, you know, just when you're telling a story, you know, something, and we'll, we'll get to that in a second stuff happens, but I do think you did a really good job kind of hitting those enough. So it's obvious that you thought about them, that they're important and are still in the book while still managing to tell a compelling story. So I wanted to give you that as a, as a, you know, kudos. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, and the person that I engaged as an editor, it's a guy named Glenn Stout, and he's the series editor for a series called the best American sports writing. And that series started in 1990. And so for people, my age, my generation, that's a lot of our introduction to great sports writing and great sports writing is great writing. And so at one point when I was working on the manuscript, I was looking at my bookshelf and I saw all these, th this row of best American sports writing, 1990, 1991, all the way to 2018 or 2019 and Glenn Stout series editor. So I just looked Glenn up and, you know, a day later I had a phone call with him and, and he was excited about the project and came aboard and was my editor. And he's at, at the very end of the project, he was like, you know, there's a whole nother book here about apartheid and the language of sports and culture and so forth. And I was like, man, he's right. <laughs> so yeah, it's there. Yeah. When did you think this was an idea for a book? Like just th thought it was an idea. Obviously you acknowledge that you started it in March of 2021. So when did you start it? And kind of what was the process like of thinking it was an idea, starting to write it, actually getting a final product? Like mm, other than sending these like weekly emails back to family and friends, just breaking down. And I did it through the whole season. Other than that, and then at the end of it, you know, like, like you said earlier, several people were like, whoa, this would be a, this should be a movie. And it's like, yeah, I guess. But I never, after that, I never thought about writing a book or anything. Pandemic happens and I'm lecturing at a university in Namibia and 
I'm not 100% comfortable with the COVID protocols. And so in a very collegial way, and back and forth with administration, I decide, you know what, I'm just, this, this is out of my, you know, risk versus reward, all these very tough decisions that, that all of us had to make. And I was lucky enough, there's that word again, uh, had the resources where I didn't need to be working for, you know, I, I could, I could stop working for, for multiple months. And so I ended up resigning and then it's like, well, what do you do now? And I was in Namibia and had all this time on my hands, couldn't really get back to the States. And at that time, Namibia was safe and the States was, was not so much. And I decided to start writing and I wrote a, a very slim book about the idea of beating Vegas with um, a type of NBA bet. I'd never bet on any games or anything like that. Didn't know anything about sport, the sports betting world, but just wrote up a little idea based on Dave Barry and, and the work that he did. And that process was pretty straightforward. And then I said, well, let me take this story of the Blue Devils basketball club. I have these pre-existing emails that can sort of form the basis of the end of the book. And let me try to do something with that. And there's a guy named Chris Fox, who's a sci-fi writer, but he also has some nonfiction books about writing. And he has this idea of a writing sprint where you just, you, you sit down and for 20 minutes, you just write and you don't worry about punctuation, spelling, you don't stop. You just write out the thoughts. So I, I did an outline and I would just do these writing sprints and I might get on a good day in an hour, and this is going to sound incredible. I might get anywhere between 3,000 and 4,000 words written. Now, they're not quality, but they're on the page. And I'm a big believer, and this is from my documentary background, it's all in the editing, right? You just, you get it on the page, or you get it, you, you capture the footage, and then you're going to make it better in the edit. So it didn't take long to have a rough draft. And that was, that's the hardest part, is just putting, putting words from scratch down. Once the words are down, now we have something to work with. Now we can edit. And I had a good friend named Anna, who was my first editor, who gave me great feedback. And then I hired uh, a professional sports editor, Glenn Stout. And he was, it was like having a master class in sports writing and just in writing in general. And so it was really getting the, the, the words down. I know this sounds crazy, but it wasn't that difficult, but it also wasn't you know, high quality. And then it was just month after month of just editing and shaping. And I had, I'm not married. I don't have children. Um, you know, for most of the pandemic, I was just living by myself in a two bedroom apartment in Namibia. So I had lots of time to work on this. I've got a, so let's, let's shout out your first book, right? So mm, by the mm -hmm. way, currently still has um, five stars on Amazon called Beating called Vegas Beating Using Vegas. Math yeah. and Marketing, An Unemployed Professor <laughs> Beats Vegas. It's called yeah. A Short Read. You managed, and some of what you're learning and what you did on your podcast was learning how to get this good reviews, how to get this high right. up the charts, who to talk to, and your podcast. Everybody, if you're this is piquing your interest, you have conservatively 20 good episodes with quality people with all sorts of advice on how to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. laughing both, that- Both, both, both traditional publishing and self-publishing. So I self-publish- my books or I have so far, and that's been great. And I have lots of interviews with people who have self-published, people who are traditionally published, and the pros and cons of both and how they, what their journey was to get to where they are. 
I am going to have to chuckle a little at you because you're telling me you had all these emails, all this footage, so to speak, of, a, of an amazing mm -hmm. book that like is like, mm -hmm. I keep saying this, this is true. This is modern day Hoosiers done better, which is, which is wild to me. And your first intuition, and so for those that don't know, I do want to give this a little bit of backstory. You decided, okay, I've been following this blog of these nerds that are saying numbers can can win at betting Vegas. And I'll, right. I'll give you a slight bit of backstory without going too in-depth. I, I will tell you that multiple people at Box Score Geeks Wages of Wins have gone on to make money betting in some forum of another on basketball because of the exact same things you saw. So that's, mm -hmm. that is a reality. You, you saw it, it's true. And it's funny that it's still true because you were doing it like pen and paper to your mm -hmm. point, and you say this in your book, because you have a job that you like, that you stop doing fun stuff like coaching because you want to focus on this job, and then the world shuts down and you're stuck here with nothing to do. It's just interesting to think about if the pandemic had never happened, I mean, we've, we've not met in person, but we've met online and we're becoming friends. These books, I never would have written these books. You and I never would have met. I wouldn't have a Substack, stack, uh, wouldn't have a podcast, uh, none of this would have happened other than the fact that because of the pandemic, I resigned from my job and now it's like, okay, now what? Funny, I, ha I had a, now admittedly, I my, my journey was a little more boring, but I had the same kind of stuff where the pandemic on multiple occasions hit me, me work-wise. And it is weird in my field, we, you know, this isn't the podcast for it, but the, what it's done to the tech field is, is remarkable and very fascinating. Mm. But to at least just tie back a lot of, a lot of why stuff like what you're doing in, in coaching and stuff and teaching appeals to me is that it applies to the tech field, but doesn't catch on. So that, that's a future. We're going to have to, as a future discussion, let's stay secure. Trey, that's the important point. Let, let's talk money because one of the things about writing and publishing a book is the money is so secretive, right? How much does someone get for an advance? How much does someone make? How much do you need to sell? Um, so on and so forth. So the cost for me to publish this book self-publish this book all in is $1,500. It's 1000 to engage Glenn as my editor, and he did a fantastic job. And it was 400 and whatever, close to 500, 480, something like that for the copy edit. That's it. And then I have a, a subscription to Canva, design my own cover, just very straightforward, very Zen-like, right? And that's it. Then with Amazon, the royalties you get are 70% of book sales that are priced between $299 and $999. So Amazon really wants to strongly encourage you to price your book in that price range. So that's why after today, it'll go up from $0.99 cents to $3.99. $0.99, cents, you only get 30% of the royalties. So Amazon wants you to price it between $299 and $999. So at 70% royalties, if the book is, I'm selling the book for $3.99, basically I need to sell, you know, to get to $1,500, I need to sell about 500 copies to break even. And then anything else beyond that is profit. The other big benefit of self-publishing, and so in the traditional publishing world, you get an advance, and then unless you're Stephen King or John Grisham, you never see a dime because it's like Hollywood accounting, right? Like the, the royalties, which you usually only get 10% of royalties, the royalties only happen once the advance is paid back, plus whatever costs the publishing house put into the book. And the and magically the advance, uh, I mean, the royalties on the back end never materialize for the author. Um, the other big benefit of self-publishing is obviously I own this material. And when you um, have a traditional publishing deal, they own the intellectual property. They can do with it what they want. They can take it out of print and you can't do anything about it. And I've read about authors that had deals 
their book didn't sell well, the book's out of print, they went on to become successful and maybe work with another publishing house, and then have had to pay tens of thousands of dollars to buy their own book back so they can put it out again. So there are pros and cons, the big pro being the advance, but for the most part, uh, I think self-publishing is better than traditional publishing. I was, when I heard that 1500 number and you said a thousand, I was assuming mm -hmm. that you were going to say a thousand for the editor, like 500 for the cover. Mm -hmm. I actually really love how you broke down that budget because ostensibly you were saying, I gave all my money to editing and I, I, I haven't written this piece yet. Again, it'll give me six months, Ben, take the amount of time it would take you to write a book. That's how long it'll take me to write this blog post. About but advice. you're married, but you're you're married with kids. Let's make sure you know. Okay, so. fair. I appreciate it. But yeah, it's it's fascinating. When I was a young guy without without even married, when I was a young guy without kids, and a a reveal I will give about a lot of office jobs. So this is not the case for me now, but a lot of real world office jobs have ostensibly downtime or wasted time built in. It's kind of funny. So to a lot of your coaching stuff, I'll harken back there. There's so many built-in things about that is basically built around control. We need you here at 9 a.m. We need you at this meeting. We need you, we need you, we need you, we need you. Very office spacey, right? Like I do like 15 minutes of real work. And the reality is, right, if you're jumping from meeting to meeting and you're expected in at a time where you're not productive, so you get into work, you're tired, you go get coffee, then there's a meeting you have to go to. Now the world changed and that you have a laptop in front of you. And I think even on one of your old podcasts, Ben, I talked about how ambient background noise is like where I get into the flow state mm -hmm. for writing. So when mm -hmm. I had an office job where they're like, you have to be at this meeting where you're going to talk for the last five minutes and your update is going to be, yeah, I finished that update. It's pushed. I'm waiting on this person to finish theirs. Peace. If I'm stuck there for an hour with a laptop, I can sit in the back and code up box score geeks or wages of wins. When I have a real job where I'm like, I got to be home for the kid. So I'm going to get what I need to get done here. It's a much mm -hmm. different world. So try yeah. to pull back the veneer of the office space world a little there about <laughs> production. But what I was going to say about, about podcasting is a big credit to your show is editing. Editing is huge. And so I actually really love that in your book, you're saying that's the thing. Even your first book, you're saying you paid a copy editor. And that's a person, right, that goes through and just make sure there aren't mistakes, there aren't topographical mm -hmm. errors, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, because that, I mean, think about it from the, as an author, Think about it from the perspective of a reader. Reader doesn't know you. You're asking that reader to take money out of their wallet, probably their digital wallet, right? But take money out of their wallet and give that money to you for a book. They should be entertained and hopefully there's some greater themes or greater lessons at work, which hopefully I've done with, with Zen in the art of coaching basketball. But if you open, so number one, the cover is important because that's the first thing somebody sees and they don't see a big cover like you see in the bookstore. They're probably seeing it on Amazon as a thumbnail, right? So you have to have a cover that pops as a thumbnail. Okay. I like the cover. I'm going to click on it and I'm going to download the free sample. I'm going to read the first chapter. If there are punctuation and spelling and grammar mistakes, is the reader likely to buy the book? No, because it's communicating. This is not professionally done care has not been put into this product. But if, if I like the cover, you know, so in, in marketing, people talk about the funnel, right? And so the, the first step is I like the cover, I'm going to click on it. Next step is I'm going to download the free sample. Next step is I like the free sample. It's professional, it's engaging, it's entertaining. I'm going to take money out of my wallet, my digital wallet and buy this book. And so the cover and a copy edit, and even now, you know, with Canva is great cover design is at least something that 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 works uh, is relatively straightforward 
and for me, a copy edit that that is the non-negotiable because you, you're you're asking people to buy a product. It should be a professionally produced product. Anything else you want to add before we head out? I do have a couple of shout outs. The, the, the book is about this team of teenagers that goes for the championship in this, in Namibia's professional league. It's about mindfulness meditation and the impact that that had and becoming a positive coach. And so there are a couple of people that I've met in the past year, met online that are in the, in the world of positive coaching. And so I mentioned this great program at the university of Missouri and there's the positive coaching Alliance. And there's a great guy who's a consultant for a number of teams um, and a number of well-known coaches named Greg Graber, who has a website and his focus is on the impact that mindfulness and positive coaching can have on performance. So those are, those are people and organizations that, that I want to highlight that are tied into this book. And of course it goes without saying, but let me say it um, to the blue devils. You know, those are my guys and we're still in touch and we're still connected. And, you know, I talked with them and said, I'm writing a book. Is it okay if I share your story? There was another sort of the main character of the book, maybe even more of a main character than I am, a guy named Seppo. And I was able to connect with Seppo the other day on Facebook and explained, you know, what I was doing and he's in the book and these things are in the book and is it okay? And um, he said, that's what happened, coach. Of course it's okay. So yeah, shout out to the Blue Devils. That's the, the Seppo epilogue on this show. That's actually really good to hear um, based yeah. on the book. I, again, don't want to read the book, read the book. You'll, you'll love Seppo and uh, his journey will make you laugh and cry, which is how good stories mm -hmm. often are. So I would agree with that. You're actually doing the, I keep forgetting if this is the Box Score Geek Show because it's been so long since we've done it, Benson. You let us into shout outs. So here's a rough one. I'm just going to take yeah. a shot in the dark and get it wrong. I'm going to give a shout out to Dave Zyron, is that the right pronunciation? As I think it's Zyron, but, but Zirin. I, I'm not 100% positive. All right. I feel really bad, Dave, because one, I've heard you on multiple podcasts where they've said your name and my brain has basically just wiped it clean as soon as intros are gone. So it's Zyron or Zyron. But here's the, the three-tiered the three -tiered shout that I'm going to give. He was just on an amazing Agony of Defeat episode uh, talking his book on Colin Kaepernick. And he fits in right, I, you know, I'll, I'll throw... Uh, Jonathan Weiler and Matt Andrews, they, they have some of the best chemistry of any two podcasters out there. When you were talking kind of your, I don't know if this was pre-show on the show, but you have like a list of podcasts where it's like regular that you have to listen to versus kind of infrequent. They're infrequent. It's because they are both paid to teach at UNC. So they are paid to do the thing that they are good at. And it's not shocking when they get the time to release a podcast. It's amazing. Uh, and Dave, uh, Edge of Sports on Twitter is, is a great listen. He has shown up on your show also a fantastic listen on your show. We, we didn't mean to take anything away, just so we're clear. Mm -hmm. And here's what I'm going to laugh about. Regularly, Ben will, 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 will ping me after the Ted Lasso and say, hey, by the way, the numbers are looking good. Um, you're getting more numbers than, and you always use Dave as your benchmark. Almost as many numbers as Dave, more numbers than Dave. And the response I have rightfully, so Dave, if you're listening, is the reason I have those numbers is because you got him. He was on your podcast. So people said, this is worth listening to. So when I right. show up, they're like, I listen to him. Right. So it's worth listening to him. And I, I'm well aware of like inflation. So I'm like, he was here on the curve. I'm there on the curve. I'm not taking any credit. Um, You're I'll say inflation adjusted, but got to give a shout out to Dave for both fantastic recent episode, great classical episode on yours. And just, just so he is aware and everybody else is aware, despite the disrespect of just 
mucking up his name in the moment, uh, he is the benchmark you use, which, which I, I say is well worth it. And, and also just to give you a little shout out, Dre. So we recorded a Ted Lasso episode that did indeed get more downloads than Dave's episode. And then we recorded a season two recap a week or two later. That season two recap, so the, the, the first Ted Lasso episode got a couple hundred downloads and the season two recap as of this morning has doubled the previous Ted Lasso episode we did. So you are doing something right. I'll give that timing. And that's the other, I mean, the, the, the key thing, the key advice I'll give to any producer, and this is rough, these are both hard. Editing and timeliness are your friends, either regularly scheduled content or timely, meaning topical, as in the Bulls won last night, you have an article about what the Bulls did right the next morning. Mm -hmm. And then of course, we'll edit it. And of course, there's some weird triangle of like, you can't always get all three, right? You can't get well edit edited, topical and timely all together all the time. And to even me, like a lot of people that you like, myself possibly included, I, I take, uh, if, you, if you guys like 100%. my stuff, I pre appreciate it. Just stuff gets in the way. And I, I, that's realizing why that happens. But I'll just say, topical, timely, and interesting, you were able to get that. And that's that's a hard thing to do. So people that do it well. And so I'll, I'll, I'll take a little bit of credit for that episode, but the bigger things is it was edited and on time. And those, you know, can't go wrong with that. Appreciate it. And, and if you like this interview, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, available as a ebook, hardcover, and paperback. And you are bent, or you are B guest on Twitter is the one you want people mm -hmm. to follow. B guest on Twitter. Be guest on Twitter and Substack is benbo.substack.com. Benbo.substack.com. Oh. So I have a weekly newsletter with a podcast and updates. There'll be updates about the next. All right. And last time, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. Get it wherever fine books are sold. So that's my conversation with Dre Alvarez. You can find his work at nerdnumbers.substack.com. That's nerdnumbers.substack.com. And on Twitter at nerdnumbers. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com, where I have free weekly posts about writing, publishing, and interviews with creative and interesting people. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider buying my book, Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey. It's available today, right now on Amazon.com. You can buy the hardcover, the paperback, or as an ebook. It's Zen in the Art of Coaching Basketball, Memoir of a Namibian Odyssey, available on Amazon. Thank you.